Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Some days you just want to pass out in a pleasant field and have all your major misdeeds wiped from existence. Welcome to the first act of Faust Part 2, in which the whole of Faust Part 1 is either negated or ignored. Will Faust find redemption? Is Gretchen damned? Who cares? There's a new emperor in town and he wants to party, and man, is Faust lucky that this rowdy king is in need of a conjurer. Let's ignore the ponderousness of Part 1 and follow Faust and Mephistopheles as they pull their P.T. Barnum act and put on a show. Join Daniel and I as we discuss how co-opted characters from Shakespeare absolve Faust at the outset, why Mephistopheles is so keen to switch the economy to paper money, and what exactly the mothers are in terms of Catholic deities. The Cannonball is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. Be sure to check out some of the other shows on the network, like Mid-Atlantic, which looks at politics and current events in Britain and the U.S. Each show consists of American and British pundits reviewing and commenting on the most important U.S. and British pieces of news that week with host Royfield Brown officiating. Find out more at midatlanticshow.com. And one more announcement. Last year, I presented at Intelligent Speech, a conference for educational podcasters. This year, the Cannonball will be there again, this time with both of us. In light of the current pandemic, the conference will be online with approximately 40 of the best educational podcasters presenting in their fields. At any point, there will be up to four different conference streams to choose from. There will also be solo presentations and a series of roundtable debates between podcasters, one of them on the gains and losses of a historical understanding moderated by yours truly. A one-day pass for the conference is currently priced at $10. For more information on the conference, visit www.intelligentspeechconference.com. If you're online, check us out at thecannonballpodcast.wordpress.com. Find us on Facebook at The Cannonball Podcast and on Twitter at CannonballPod. One last note, if you're in the New York area and need reading and writing tutoring or are interested in online tutoring, let us know. I have a tutoring business on the side and two kids, so I'm always looking for a few more clients. If you need some help, send an email to claudemoinc at gmail.com. That's C-L-A-U-D-E-M-O-I-N-C at gmail.com. We can also produce literary lectures on demand. I'm not entirely certain what situations would call for that, but for some quality literary infotainment, hit us up.
and welcome to The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. This is Claude Myron Guzer, and with me as always is Daniel Doherty. Daniel, how you doing? You hanging in there? Uh, I'm very good. Yeah, uh, I guess apologies for the uh, the disruption in production. I, I do think, Claude, when we go into these things, we attempt to make them timeless, much like the great works, which we so you don't read. Uh, but of course, just by way of explanation for everybody listening, this is being recorded um, during the spring of coronavirus. Uh, so doubtless all of y'all out there in radio land have also life's kind of turned upside down a little bit um, to a greater or lesser extent. Uh, ours work too. So I <laughs> think this for the podcast kind of, I, I, would, I would say it was a low priority because I, you know, this of course this is, is uh, our lives. We pull all of our blood, sweat and tears into it and you can feel all on the track. But uh, we did have to kind of delay a while. But, you know, I, I'm so happy to be back though, dude, because <laughs> man, Faust part one was a bit confounding. Faust part two is the good kind of confounding. Oh my God. Well, yeah, I, that was, that was a strange thing. Um, I'm in New York, so I'm at the epicenter and, uh, I hourly rock back and forth between the pillars of, um, fear and anger. Uh, but there was something about doing this. There was something about diving, excuse me, into Faust part two, that it brought me back in some way, shape or form. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so enigmatic and there really is something at the heart of it. That's, that's enigmatic about this. I mean, Bloom even talks about that. Um, and I don't necessarily want to give a lot of credence to what Bloom said about fasting, but um, but I don't Bloom think uh, I don't think anyone who's, who's listened to the show thus far would think we uh, we are axiomatic Bloomites, right? But um, I mean, I'm not debasing the guy, but just but the, the there is something really sort of enigmatic about this that that sent me back to the books. I've got three different translations of this. I've got my notes spread out before me. Um, I, I'd read the Atkins translation, but I had the David Luke one, and I finally cracked the David Luke one, and the Luke one, it, it's it's a lot of fun. It's very illuminating. It's in verse, and there's something about it that just grabbed me this time through. Uh, the annotations in Luke are really sort of interesting, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, I, I'm still using the Norton um, translated by Walter Arndt with the the annotations by Cyrus Hamlin. But um, th- there's something about Hamlin's annotations for part two that that I found a little bit uh, lacking. I-, I think he might be a little bit too credulous. Well, okay, he might be reading in a way that I'm not sure the text, is- text wants us to read. And th- this is the other thing. I- I'm going to have to apologize for all this because um, – there's something I think I'm getting from the text, which I may not be getting from the text. Uh, you have, I, I have to apologize because I'm not reading this in the original German. Yeah. And there, there are all of these suggestions of something that I think I'm seeing that I may or may not be seeing, but we'll, we'll get into that when we get into that. Yeah. I, I think really the, that's a great point that, it really does feel like there's a there's a commentary being done about the kind of political milieu of 
we can call the region of Central Europe, which became Germany later in Turin, um, right. which Goethe was, you know, writing in and, and living through, that I think, you know, setting, setting part two in the court of the emperor, which was an office that no longer existed by the time part two came out. Um, not that part right. two is set in the, in the contemporary day or anything, but, you know, like it, that, you know, that seems to have a kind of uh, resonance that, yeah, yeah, that perhaps we're uh, not too much up on or, or we're getting like an echo of it. But you're right, we can, I, I guess we can, we can cross that bridge when we come to it. Um, <laughs> All right. So uh, I, I want to do this a little bit, a little bit differently than what we usually do. What we usually do, I believe, is just sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, we go through this uh, sort of beat by beat and take it apart as we go. But what I want to do, or or really, we like before we get into that, we, we usually give a whole lot of background information and all this stuff like that, and then go through beat by beat and take it apart as we go. But what I want to do is start with the very beginning uh, the beginning of Faust Part 2, which is extraordinarily strange. Um, we, if you read the first part, you know that we end with this horrible you know, exploitation of this woman. Uh, Faust is dragged off stage by Mephistopheles. He's, I guess, learned his lesson. He's older but wiser. And uh, a woman and her family are dead. <laughs> Yeah, it's I think that that sort of gets at how frustrated we sort of were at um, at at part one. It it was an annoying, frustrating work and it still sort of sticks in my craw. And and Goethe, you know, as we discussed, he he kind of got tired of it halfway through and just kind of had to wrap it up. But part two begins with this prologue. Or it's usually attributed to being a prologue to the whole of part two. Uh, it's a beautiful landscape. Now, there's a callback here to uh, some of the other stuff from part one, in particular, you know, the dreary landscape or the the sort of moment where where Faust and Mephistopheles are are riding their horses across the field and it's all gloomy and everything like that. Uh, this is the antithesis of that. This is the beautiful landscape. And it begins with Faust. Uh, this is Luke's translation. Lying among grass and flowers, exhausted and restless, trying to sleep. It's dusk. Spirits, graceful little shapes hovering and circling, circling round. And then Ariel... Uh, appears. And this is Ariel from Shakespeare's The Tempest. Uh, the, in, in The Tempest, Ariel shows up as this sort of spirit of the island who's being commanded by Prospero. And Ariel's role is sort of to be the good servant as opposed to Caliban, who's the bad servant. And Prospero has um, sort of indentured Ariel to several years of service and eventually lets him go. And Ariel is the kind of genial spirit of the island. He is given the task of sort of assuaging uh, a character who believes his father to have died. He's a, a sort of figure of grace and and song. He also showed up in the previous Faust, in Faust Part 1. He showed up in the Walpurgisnacht, where Goethe had sort of reworked a lot of um, – Shakespearean material into this kind of Midsummer Night's Dream type uh, 
sort of moment, even though uh, Ariel is not in Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, okay, so he shows up and he basically says to the little spirits, all right, let's remove all the care and all the worry from Faust and let's remove any memory of any bad thing that happened uh you around this mortal's head circling in air heal now his heart in noble elfin fashion soothe its fierce conflict and the bitter passion of self-reproaches burning darts make clean his soul of all the horrors it has seen so okay yeah they're gonna um, uh, eternal sunshine the spotless mind him and just you know hard reset and uh <laughs> so, so that woman and her family died for nothing because he doesn't even retain a lesson there you go. So he just dispenses with part one. Wow. All right. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the first really sort of amazing part. And then um, Faust, after all this goes on, finally awakens. All right. And <clears throat> he he's blessed now. He's restored right and, and part of what this is doing is is sort of this metaphorical thing that i think Goethe is working with there's this restoration which takes place after the sleep and he's reborn in a way yeah. and the rebirth is also sort of figured again in the the metric that he's using uh faust's monologue here it's a famous monologue uh, or soliloquy i suppose uh it's it's a soliloquy in terza rima which is the dantesque meter right it's the meter that dante was using yeah. and on the one hand um you know dante i suppose is famous for uh inferno the the drop to hell but really as you know we examined dante in in the long run was about this kind of elevation ultimately up towards the heavens and that terzarima okay the the commedia had so much to do with easter and resurrection Right? Mm-hmm. And it oh, was yeah. revolving in many ways around the resurrection, around Easter, Good Friday, and so on and so forth. And there's something about the the Faust myth, or, or at least Goethe's handling of the Faust myth, which revives that resurrection motif. Remember, there was the Easter uh, Sunday or the spring when everybody was walking out uh, in the fields, uh, that, that giant sort of collective moment early in Faust Part 1. Um, this seems more or less to be Faust's resurrection, right? Uh, it's his Easter after having been reborn. So he has this uh, <clears throat> sort of moment where he's greeting the dawn, and it's this moment of renewal. And <clears throat> it's it's he's talking about how he's once more ready to strive to sort of meet humanity's highest form, right? Um, He he looks up and he sees the sun. And this is kind of the, the 
the moment. Let me look up. Each giant summit height proclaims already this most solemn hour. They are the first to taste the eternal light as we shall when its downward course is ended. He's looking at the mountains. Now the green slanting meadow slopes are bright. Again, each detail new and clear and splendid and day spreads stepwise with the darks down sinking. See the sun rises, but my eyes offended turn away dazzled from this great shrinking, uh, from this great sight shrinking. Now that's a, a callback to the earth spirit. Remember all the way back in Faust part one, when he was doing the conjuring in his uh, in his study, he called up that thing which may be a part of the divine, or it may be the voice of the earth, or it may be – it's indeterminate. Whatever that thing is sort of humbled Faust and made him feel as though, okay, there's no possible way I can get at this thing. His reaction to the sun seems in the same mold. Right. So this is that thing that's more powerful than him that he can't get at. Uh, he turns then to looking at the, the water and, uh, or it's, it's the waterfall going down the mountains. Right. And he finds there this new metaphor. Right. Uh, so be it. I will turn from the sun's rays at that rock riving torrent with increasing ecstasy at that waterfall I gaze. From cliff to cliff it pours down, never ceasing. It foams and streams a thousand thousandfold, spray upon spray high in the air releasing. Uh, but from this tumult, marvelous to behold, the rainbow blooms, changing yet ever still, now vanishing and now drawn clear and bold. How cool the moisture of its scattering spill. I watch a mirror here of man's whole story and plain it speaks. Ponder it as you will. Our life's a spectrum sheen of borrowed glory. Okay. Um, the, the Hamlin translation or, or the Hamlin notes in the Arndt translation uh, are, are a little helpful here because they sort of point us to this way that he seems to be thinking about the, the river as emblematic in some way, shape or form of human life. On the one hand, the river is, or, or the water is solidly there, right? But it's also in motion at the same time. So it's both static and moving. And there's something aesthetic about this as well. Art, uh, on the one hand, is static, e eternal, if you do it right, in some way, shape, or form. However, each new moment is going to reinterpret or rework it or reuse it as it will. And I think that's a motif that's going to be coming up again and again, especially when we get to the Helen sections. Yeah. Well, it's that old, um, that old Heraclitus uh, bit yeah. that I've always admired. The uh, you can never step in the same river twice. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and that's how he seems to be thinking about it, or at least that's how Hamlin thinks he's thinking about it. Um, but there's this other thing that's going on. The image is accessible. The The sun is not accessible, but the the thing produced by the sun is accessible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, that struck me as almost a kind of what well, neoplatonic or gnostic yes. kind of aspect to it. That there's yeah. the in in human life, in the striving, turbulent, imperfect, ever changing world, we as human beings still have the opportunity to reflect or transmit the light of the eternal, unmoving, unchanging, unapproachable. And that's where we can get at it. And I mean, you're bringing up Neoplatonism and, and Gnosticism. That's exactly what I was thinking because yeah. this image, <laughs> this image, well, cause it's me, but this image also shows up in Shelley. 
um, in, in, in an earlier work by Shelley Mont Blanc, he's thinking in the same way about looking over Mont Blanc. Mont Blanc is a, a response to Wordsworth's, um, Tintern Abbey, where where Wordsworth, uh, in this kind of like mellow hippie phase, can intuit the oneness with the whole and become one with the universe uh, through sort of recharging his batteries by going on a good hike. And Shelley goes up to the Swiss Alps and says, yeah, look at all that destructive power. I don't see any transcendental bullshit coming in here. Um, where it's, it's like it's a lot more violent and disruptive and chaotic. But um, Shelley looks over the edge and has a very, very similar um, sort of moment with a waterfall. Uh, it makes me wonder if Goethe read Shelley because I believe Shelley's poem was was much earlier than this would have been. Uh, or maybe it was just a common, sort of like a common motif. In any event, what we can see is the spray, the reflection. We can see the symbol and not the thing. We can, see, we can experience through the the performance the the energy of the thing even if we can't get at the thing that's what he seems to be saying and, and it struck me as this kind of meta aesthetic moment right yeah. so so much of of part 2 has to do with a with pageantry i mean the the whole first act is is more or less a giant Mardi Gras parade. Right, right. It's all this uh, this uh, masquerade being performed in an imperial court. It's it, it's as, it's as uh, contrived an environment as possible. But the second act is when he goes. Okay, in the second act, and we'll get to this in a later episode. Uh, Faust goes to a classical Walpurgisnacht in order to try to find the spirit of Helen, and. That's just as much a pageant. Mm -hmm. That's just as much a Mardi Gras. And there's so much of this which has to do with performance and the play of performance. Um, what he seems to be suggesting, and, and this is, this is where, where I'm saying I want to be very, very careful here because I don't speak German. Uh, well, I, I speak it very poorly, if at all. Uh, I don't really have the German to be able to read Goethe, but there seems to be something recurring throughout the, the play that is at once enigmatic and also suggestive of a kind of meta theatrical performative aesthetic, yeah. which it, it's doing something I can't quite put my finger on, but I'm going to try to suss it out. Well, Does that make I sense? Think, yeah, because something that I, that really struck me about it is that you're reading this elaborate, um, you know, in the, in the, you know, this, the Imperial palace, which, you know, we, I, I don't want to skip the part where, uh, Faust, uh, or rather, Mephistopheles touts uh, uh, Faust with this fraudulent get rich quick scheme for the emperor. Though that one, that one was really fascinating, and plus on a couple of things I do want to talk about. <laughs> but um, but you no, know, the fact that like so much of this first act of part two is this masquerade being performed to basically induce Faust to the imperial court. Um, so that's you know, so this is a play. This is written as a play um, with stage direction and stuff. So we have a play which includes in it a play with stage directions are like some, you know, aspects of the performance being described and with stage directions and stuff that like, I, 
no one can perform this on the stage at all. <laughs> it would be this is this is a play that's impossible to stage. Um, yeah. Absent absent some sort of like uh, absent some sort of like Spider Man turn off the dark level of you know just like yeah. uh, willful throwing away of lives in, uh, in, in in wire harnesses and whatnot. I mean, which led me to believe that, like I you know. I don't believe Greta intended this to be performed. No. I think I, choosing I, the form of a play to write all this is itself part of the message such as, yeah. such as it is. So, yeah, we definitely have to tease out what exactly is it saying about performance since it's hammering this is all a performance and I'm writing it as a performance for someone to perform but no one's ever going to perform it. <laughs> I, I, I am eagerly... I'm eager to see how we get our way out of this aerobarus of theatricality. All right. <laughs> I, I think, I, I think I, oh boy, let me do the math on this. Okay. Who do we identify with? That's, that's the question from the beginning is who do we identify with? Um, it, it, there, there are a couple of things floating out there that want to read. There are schematics that that want to read Faust as emblematic of the um, progress of humankind, or emblematic of this historical progress, or emblematic of this. And they're, they're well and good if you want schematics. You know yeah. that <clears throat> I, I I don't find them that useful that for that much. Um, but there, there are some things going on here. This is in some way, shape, or form autobiographical. Uh, Goethe worked as a, a, a courtier. He worked in the court of – oh, shoot. I can't remember which, which nobleman. But he was a member of that circle in that scene and he had a court function and he had a job. Um, he was an advisor. And so partially – the mask is autobiographical. Um, yeah. Partially, the the stuff about the search for Helen and classical beauty is autobiographical. There's a lot about this which draws from Goethe's own experiences. So autobiography is working – all right – Autobiography is the wrong word. Perhaps self-mythologization and not okay. necessarily <laughs> yeah. not necessarily in that narcissistic, you know, I am the king of this or I am that sort of way, but turning the life into a myth, which is a totally romantic thing to do, right? Uh, romantic not as in I want to have sex with you, but as in um, emblematic of the, the, that era, right? Yeah. Okay. So you've got those aspects working in there. You've also got the performative aspects working in there, right? So in some way, shape, or form, the performance is for us, the reader, right? Yeah. Though Faust himself is, he falls in love with his own performance. And we can talk about that in a little bit. Um, the characters are really ciphers, like there's not a lot to latch on to, right? This is this is not the realm of psychological realism. We could get into that in part one because there was something to hang on to. But here, the characters are just sort of stand-ins. They're almost cartoon cutouts, right? Yeah. 
All right. What exactly are we looking at? Okay. Let me digress by talking about the background of this. I have a really weird kind of hypothesis about this, but I think it kind of works. Okay. Um, okay. So... <clears throat> Turn it through my notes. All right. In oh, 1808, say, uh, at home, we're we're not on uh, video because my internet is so bad. So I just imagined uh, Claude unfolding a gigantic chart. I basically, I, I, it's it's like the end of True Detective, where I've got you know a, a giant map all over the place. All right. So in eighteen oh eight, he publishes part one. Okay, he finishes up, publishes that. Okay. In 1816, he starts working on sketches of part two, acts one, three, and four. In 1825, he moves on to act three. And act three, for him, it seems like that's the central part. And act three is when Faust and Helen finally get together. Um, one of the, the sort of, okay, one of the other legends about Faust was that he went to court and summoned the spirits of Paris and Helen of Troy, or sometimes summoned just the spirit of Helen of Troy and she became his consort. So that's the part of the legend that, that Goethe is working with here. Okay. But it's that act three with the Helen section seems to be where he wants to get to. That's kind of the central thing. In 1826, he works on the prologue, <coughs> that that thing that we just read, uh, or that that we just went through. In 1827, Act Three is published separately as Helena. It's it's published as its own phantasmagoria. 1827, he finally finishes the prologue. 1828, um, Act One is published as a fragment. In 1829, he goes back to working on part two. And from 1830 to 32, he's working and working and working on Faust part two. And he dies in 1832 on March 22nd. December of 1832, when his complete works are finally put out there, Faust part two is published. Wow. (laughs) Okay. Um, here's my, my kind of hypothesis, which seems to be bubbling throughout the play. If I'm seeing it correctly, he pulled a David Bowie or David Bowie pulled a Goethe. This is his black star. Um, David Bowie sort of famously, uh, put out this album right before he died, which seems to have been intended to be posthumous and nobody knew he was ill when he put it out. And then once he died, everything sort of clicked into place. Um, it's a, 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 a black hole. It's the thing that was there. That's not there anymore. Um, this, th- there's this suggestion or, or it's what I'm getting. I, I could be horribly wrong about this. 
but it's the the suggestion that I'm getting all throughout the the play with this meta theatricality. There's always this suggestion of this thing there that's underneath this enigmatic thing, which is not being represented on stage, but which is working underneath the whole thing. That if you just know how to acknowledge it, you can see. Hmm. Um, it's the author. Okay. That 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 seems to be what what's going on here. There, there's this moment in um, William Carlos Williams Patterson where he he writes about Williams uh, writes about um, you see the the burnt marks, but not the white hot man. Right. And yeah. what he's talking about is sort of like type, you know, you see the, the words on the page, but you don't see the sort of energy behind it. And that seems to be the kind of God in the machine. You see the evidence of the thing, but not the thing itself. You have the aesthetic experience, but not the producer of the experience. You have the symbol, but you can't take the full blast. There's all these suggestions throughout the work that um, what we're witnessing is the performance of an energy that's not there anymore. It's almost like action painting or, or like Jackson Pollock. What you're meant to see is Pollock. Yeah, yeah. I could be getting it horribly wrong, but that that was kind of like the fascinating part to me, at least with Act One. There's all of this stuff going on, which is suggestive of something underneath, and it won't tell you what the underneath is. <laughs> well, I mean, it's even yeah. very very boldly so in that the uh, the the scheme I mentioned earlier, the the get rich quick scheme, Mephistopheles and Faust pitch to the emperor, is literally. <laughs> predicated on a, a subterranean unseen horde of riches that they exactly. alone can have access to them. You can't see yet. And, and I think you really just tied that all together. Like what it, what it, what that particular aspect was, um, it, it rang a bell for me, uh, because this, okay. So Goethe's writing in the, you know, the late 18th century, uh, early 19th century, as, as you so, uh, as you so laid out, this is of course done in, in fits and starts over a period of decades. Um, this was a time, this, this all came about because I, I've been reading a book. Um, it's actually, I was sent on the trail by, um, a book called The Money Cult by Chris Lehman, which kind of traces the sort of prehistory of the prosperity gospel in sort of the deeper currents of colonial and then early Republican America. And mm-hmm. something I was unaware of in reading it, that I knew more about and then put a more kind of dug more into with a book called early Mormonism and a magic worldview by a, uh, a Mormon scholar by the name of Quinn, which is really a, a fantastic historical work. Um, so Joseph Smith, of course, had this reputation. You know, Joseph Smith founded Mormonism for chicanery because he was a dowser. He would sell uh, okay. using his magical powers or sort of mystical connection to find buried treasure. And this is something that was actually extremely common. And it was introduced to the United States by a German immigrant. There was this Dalton <laughs> tradition in Germany, which had a mystical aspect to it because it wasn't just about you would like find using mystical powers, you would find where someone had buried a cask of old Roman some centuries ago or something like that. There was the sense that these wealth hordes were 
almost like growths, like fungus that grew out of the ground that you could be that there were stories of a dowser who had dug and found a chest, but he grabbed that a little too eagerly and it sunk back into the ground as if drawn back by some <clears throat> intelligence. There was this concept of, you know, these are, these are the dowsers themselves who talk about it this way of like, you look, you're sort of almost like these things bud out of the ground and you can ruin it by thinking about it wrong while you're dousing. And then they just fade away. <laughs> so it, it, all of that just came flooding back to me when I was reading what Mephistopheles was pitching to the end as a way to solve all of their, their woes in, in the empire to get their mercenaries paid to, you know, get the bureaucracy uh, up and running, you know, all indebted that Faust using his mystical connections and magical powers would be able to find this vast buried horde beneath the ground, which legally belonged to the emperor by some you know, long-standing <laughs> feudal custom. And it was really, um, but, but, but there is this, it doesn't come up as, it doesn't come out as much in the text so far. I don't, you know, I've, we, you've read this before. I've only, you know, I've, I've only read the first act of part two. It doesn't come out as much, but the fact that in the tradition of what I know about it, that that wealth was considered ephemeral, that that wealth yeah. was considered changeable and almost a chimera in itself, even though it's really there. That yeah. <laughs> I think just resonates so strongly with your thesis of the Faust attempting to deliver the untouchable experience to the audience somehow. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's where this gets really complicated because, all right, so to. to Go back to the plot for one second. After Faust wakes up in this field, automatically we're in the court of some emperor. Um, yeah. I think original drafts had it as Maximilian, but uh, Goethe eventually sort of changed that to make it, uh, I guess, uh, I guess a little bit more vague. But he's he's an emperor. More of a stock character, more of a cipher, like we were saying. Yeah. And he's not a very good emperor. <laughs> The kingdom is in disarray. Um, there are all these these problems. The mercenaries aren't being paid. Um, they're running out of wine. They're running out of cash. There's there there are all these problems. And what does he do? Well, I don't want to worry about that right now. Let's have my gaudy mask. Let's have my procession. I want my carnival. Yeah. Right. Um, so <laughs> Mephistopheles off stage has replaced the jester. And, uh, comes clowning on and, uh, produces this, or I guess Mephistopheles doesn't produce it, but this mask was meant to go on anyway. And so we have this herald who serves, this is the weird part. The herald, uh, serves as the stage directions because the stage directions yeah. <laughs> sort of take a second, they, they take a back seat. So the herald is sort of, telling everything that's happening and you're trying to envision it. But the Herald says something really fascinating at the beginning of the mask. All right. Um, in in both translations that I was using, the, the same terms are used. This is Luke. Uh, he says, uh, Now all are reborn in this garb of jest, and every worldly man of us is glad to pull it round his ears and head to look a clown and to be antic mad, though under it he's sane like all the rest. Um, 
the the Atkins translation also has this language of regeneration. We are regenerated by the mask. We are reborn in the mask. Okay, that goes back to Faust's sort of coming back to life on that that you know at that pleasant scene at that rebirth mm-hmm. of this natural cycle. Um, th- there's a little bit of a problem with this mask, though, because fraud is so much a part of its very essence. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> fraud, fraud is the – okay, eventually what Faust and Mephistopheles are going to pull on the emperor is fraud. While the mask is going on um, or by the end of the mask, they convince him to start issuing paper money in you know after promising him that Mephistopheles can come up with these you know uh, secret underground underground buried treasures uh, he starts issuing paper money left right and center and everybody's using it for the most frivolous gain uh, the the joke is that the fool shows back up at the end of the act and uses the paper money to buy property. Right. <laughs> it exchanges it for actual, usable, tangible things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so the whole thing is concerned with fraud, and the, the whole mask itself is an act of fraud, and the whole mask is about commerce and fraud and yeah. squandering money. Uh, it begins with the flower girls who um, are, are sort of selling – cheap beauties and if the connection to prostitution isn't sort of apparent enough then pretty much immediately after the flower girls you have um this mother come on to tell her daughter to open up her legs and go sell herself so she can get a husband i mean it's 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 that literal um from the very beginning the 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 pageant has to do with buying and selling and buying an illusion right so commerce and 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 art are are intermixed into this gigantic spectacle what's the point yeah if this is all right if this is the the sort of illusion which allows us to know that all-encompassing truth, then what exactly is this doing? I mean, this is clearly satirical, (laughs) but what exactly is he saying? And it gets even weirder when the charioteer drives up. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Um, okay, they, they have a giant triumph, and it's kind of, uh, it's really pretty rote. As far as I can tell, um, there's this elephant that comes on and victory is riding at the top and fear and hope are chained on the other side and then wisdom is leading it. And so it's kind of just it, it's a pretty simple allegory, which is how these things went. Right. And then Mephistopheles shows up as this two faced character Um mocking things on top of the elephant he's beaten by the herald transforms into an egg the egg cracks open out slithers a snake and a bat that flies off and that changes the tone of the whole procession from here on in uh mephistopheles and faust are in control and this is their bizarre illusion (laughs) Right, <laughs> and that's a, I think the, the finest example of the uh, stage direction, as described by one of the characters, that again would be impossible to actually stage. Um, yeah, I, I guess absent some sort of very uh, what what we call interpretive sort of performances. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I d- d- Jesus, the movie version of this. Uh, but the, I, I found myself thinking, like, if someone did give me, you know, I'll do it for cheap, $60 million. I'll, I'll make yeah. you a movie of Faust Part 2 in the spirit of Faust Part 2. And you get what you get. <laughs> I Man, it's it's out there. But, the okay, in the middle of this, a boy charioteer flies down on a winged horse carrying uh, Plutus, um, the god of wealth. Right? Yeah. Okay. So let's pull aside for a second. Um, Goethe had a secretary named Eckermann, and Eckermann, in the last nine years of Goethe's life, sort of wrote down all these long conversations that the two of them had. And, okay, part of what makes reading Faust Part Two so weird is this kind of lack of clear definition of who's doing what. Characters change names, they change identities, everything is fluid. But there's also a lot of connective tissue that's just not there, that Goethe just didn't write. Um, he may have had in mind, he may have intended to write it, uh, but it's just not there. Um a lot of this extraneous stuff sort of comes out in these conversations with Eckermann, uh, and, and Hamlin incorporates a lot of this into his notes. And so Hamlin is trying to make the case that this is a much more coherent work than perhaps it is, that there are less gaps in it. And, and I, I think he relies a little too much on these conversations. But according to the conversations, Here's how it works. The chariot boy is Euphorion, who is the son of Faust and Helen, who doesn't appear until Act 3, and then dies in Act 3. So, <laughs> the timing is weird. <laughs> he's, he's this strange... 
strange figure of poetry. And as he appears in Act Three, he dies because he's a kind of Icarian figure who soars too high without remembering to be grounded by the material of the earth. So he's a kind of poet too given to abstraction without enough sort of ballast to weigh him down. Yeah. And that's why he crashes and burns. He's what happens when you're given too much license and forget the material circumstances that are around you, which is going to play into a lot of the the sort of gothic versus classical, german versus greek, mm-hmm. modern versus antiquity sort of stuff that goes on. But he shows up in the first act. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, it's, you know, it's, um, I suppose a kind of foreshadowing or, or more a matter of like just nonlinear, uh, illusion, you know? Well, he shows up in the first act drawing the chariot of the God of wealth. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, the God of wealth who is Faust in disguise. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> what exactly is being said here? Uh, th- there's this whole pageant about paying for a cheap illusion. Yeah. There's this whole pageant about giving up resources for appearances. Um, that There's, in the middle of it, there's this figure who says it's the real producer of the real aesthetic experience, but it can only be vouchsafed by the extraordinary wealth behind it, but the extraordinary wealth is put into producing the real aesthetic experience instead of something else. Yeah. The boy charioter, okay, he says, I am profusion, I am poetry. The poet who perfects himself, the more he spends from his most precious store. I too am rich like Plutus, and I hold myself his peer in wealth untold. Uh, I enliven his feasts, adorn his dances, where his provision lacks, there mine enhances. There's something about the aesthetic which is not self-sufficient but you couldn't have the material without the aesthetic. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a fairly straightforward. I, I read it being, of course, a fairly straightforward uh, illustration of patronage, which, yeah. which Faust was no stranger to, of course. But I think, I think, yeah, it become kind of it becomes a little more complicated in the fact that, like, there's there's that one scene where the charioteer representing poetry and aesthetic accomplishment uh, throws out. Um, jewel and, and baubles and, you know, rich items to be gathered at him use at the mass, which then transform into, you know, a handful of acorns or something. They, they, yeah. They, <laughs> it's, it's, and so it's almost a matter of like through patronage, the, the, you know, Plutus, the wealthy patron destroys his wealth. Yeah. That, I mean, that, that's really sort of it. But there's this, weird moment and and this gets back to this kind of meta aesthetic that 
that I keep harping on. Um, the Herald is calling out the, the charioteer for sort of throwing out these, these gods. And he says, it seems your Herald's role is to proclaim the hollow mask, but not to name the true reality that lies behind. That is beyond your shallow courtly mind. You can, you can see the mask and you can call it the mask, but you can't quite see what the truth is underneath. The, there are a couple more moments in, in Act 1 where characters are being critiqued for not being able to see what's underneath. Is what's underneath nothing? Is it everything? Is it like, wait, okay. D- do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah. It's, it's weird. It's really weird. Okay. So anyway, the way this goes is Plutus uh, eventually releases the boy charioteer Um the Mephistopheles is playing around in the back as uh, avarice and um, these other kinds of figures. He's a miser at one point. <laughs> this is this is the fun part of the play. At one point, uh, Mephistopheles, uh, as the miser, uh, grabs a bunch of gold, um, fashions it into a giant uh, golden phallus, and then just starts chasing the ladies around with it. Um, like you do. Yeah. And um, the the culmination is when uh, Pan shows up, and Pan is the emperor in disguise. And uh, Faust, as Plutus, brings out this giant chest, which is supposed to reveal all of the fiery truth to Pan. And there's another pun in there, Pan as the god Pan, but Pan being everything as in i guess um pantheistic right yeah uh the the emperor opens the chest um his beard catches fire and this giant conflagration sort of ensues and everyone's burning alive until faust pulls um his sort of illusory fire alarm and douses everything in fake water. He douses all the fake fire in fake water. Yeah. And the pageant is done. The illusion is done. The end. Yeah. I thought thought it was was really hilarious how the, the very next scene is kind of, you know, the next day and, uh, the emperor and courtiers are in the garden and the emperor, uh, and Faust comes up and says, do you forgive our fire illusion, sire? And the emperor's like, oh, welcome, many more such entertainment. There I was, suddenly inside a realm of fire. He still seems like, like, yeah, that was crazy last night, huh, bro? Yes. <laughs> it was really, it was really just, I, I laughed aloud when I was reading it because it was just kind of like, like, oh, well, anyway, how about, wow, that was nuts. Anyway, what else you got? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, all right. And so um, now that the paper money's being doled out, uh, the yeah. emperor wants to see uh, Helen of Troy. And um, the problem here is that uh, Mephistopheles is a Germanic Gothic demon. He can't do no uh, classical underworld. Um, So he's got to send Faust down to the mothers. Okay, put on your pervert hat. This is really, really, really weird. Um, Mephistopheles says, Pagans are not my period, sir. They're lodged in their own special hell, but there's a way. Faust says, divulge it instantly. 
Um, Mephistopheles says, I do not like to. This is high mystery. Enthroned in solitude are goddesses. No place, no space around them. Time still less. I mentioned them with some uneasiness. They are the mothers. Faust startled. Mothers. Mephistopheles, you dread the name? Um, I, I always imagine that um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail sting uh, after mothers, <laughs> but um, the, there's something like really bizarre going on here. Okay, so the what Faust has to do, and I, I talked about this a little bit last time. Um, in order to find Helen of Troy, uh, Faust has to descend to the mothers, who are these weird entities, um, sort of chaos entities uh they they seem to reside in this place where everything is unformed but potentially there it's sort of like potential action um you can get creepy and freudian with that and and i'm sure goethe wants you to um (laughs) it gets it gets worse because uh Mephistopheles gives Faust a, a small key that he sort of holds to his waist and says, you want me to do something with this key? And he says, but wait, it grows bigger and it grows bigger and bigger and bigger yeah. in Faust's own hand. And what he has to do is stamp three times to descend to the mothers, touch a tripod with the key and the tripod will glow and follow him. Um, so you've got all this phallic stuff until he goes down into this chaotic pit and then he can, um, more or less give birth to the illusion of Helen of Troy. Okay. Uh, what did you think the mothers were? <laughs> so my, uh, at first blush reading it, I, there have been so many classical illusions, right? In the, in the whole thing. And, my my first thought was that like okay this must be some kind of like callback to some minor canonic deity or and because it was plural I automatically automatically assumed to tree deities because that's usually if you're talking plural deities with uh, with the kind of classical Europe they they tend to come in threes. Um, but it was very it was a little odd because like I was you know racking my brain thinking of uh, Oh, what are some, you know, chthonic, like underground, like, sorry, chthonic is one of those mythological terms. It just means associated with being underground or in the earth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, which is, of course, the mother's like, you know, Faust stands his foot three times and is swallowed up in the earth to go visit their special chaos place. And, but there had earlier been in the mask, there had been reference to the Furies, which are kind of the most famous underground yeah. weird, weirdo goddesses in Greek mythology. And so I was kind of thinking like, well, the mother different from the Furies. And I just kind of like, I, don't, I didn't really know what to make of it, Claude. And you messaged the other day <laughs> saying, oh, man, I have a lead on the mothers. And mentioned something. It's like some tossed away reference in Plato. Is that right? No, it's it's Plutarch. Plutarch. In Plutarch's, I got curious enough. This was one of the footnotes. I got curious enough. Uh, Goethe said he found it in Plutarch. It was in the life of Marcellus. He said he came across this local group of, I guess, deities that were worshipped. And I was like, okay, all right. So I, I have 
access to this. I'll just drag it up and see what I can find. Um, there's a, uh, somebody put up, I think it was University of Chicago has up some big, I guess, project on Plutarch's lives. Yeah. And they, they've sort of got them all published up there. So if you ever want to read Plutarch, it's, it's available online for free. Fantastic. Um, and so I, would, the- uh, I would recommend now, <laughs> just you know, putting on my, my, my history students cap here, I, I will say, um, in a, in a previous podcasting life, I once referred to Plutarch as the Kitty Kelly of the classical world. <laughs> and I spy that, but it's still very valuable to read. Just bear in mind, he, was picking and choosing the stories he was going to tell to create diptychs to illustrate moral stories. So he told, as in parallel, he'd pick a Roman life and a Greek life or, or a yeah. person from the so Greek classical world, tell their stories in parallel, and then draw some kind of moral lesson from them. And you, of course, right off the bat, you're going to recognize just how much violence you're going to have to do to the truth to make such a neat little <laughs> scheme make sense. But he is a very valuable source on a lot of basic information and is actually a good writer. Uh, a lot of classical authors, you know, it's much fun to read. But Plutarch is up there yeah. for me with Herodotus and Xenophon is actually being kind of nice to read. <laughs> so um, in The Life of Marcellus, it's mentioned three times. Uh, there was this place. They had a temple to the mothers. So-and-so went to the temple to the mothers. And uh, so-and-so died at the temple to the mothers. That's it. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Goethe clearly riffed on this and he, he used some, I, I guess, neoplatonic stuff back there as well mm-hmm. to come up with this idea of basically what you interpreted, I, I think, accurately as these chthonic deities that are lurking down there, like somewhere primally involved in the the production of stuff or the potentiality as and opposed not, to and not the just actual. the production of stuff but the retention of stuff because the whole yeah. reason Faust goes to find them is because as Mephistopheles puts it I, I don't have the exact the passage in front of me but like the ghost of things which have been swirl around them yes uh, yeah. so that would be where you could find the image of, of Helen or what have you is around these primordial almost protean kind of entities that are it's a kind of it's a much more I think complete sense of potentiality than just things which may because it also includes things which have been yeah and I didn't want to get into the entelechy but I guess I'm going to have to Um, (laughs) this was a, a kind of running thing in Luke's in Luke's notes and it's a little bit hard to keep track of because it pops up a couple of different times. But apparently at certain times, Goethe sort of believed in this, this, I don't, maybe it's close to the Nietzschean eternal return. Mm-hmm. Like there are these things that, that come and go, things that had been things that are things that will be that inhabit forms. Like mm-hmm. sort of eternal forms that that seems to be how how it's operating. Um, he also thinks of personal entelechies, if I understand it correctly, like the part of the soul that is constantly reborn. Yeah. So it, there's something about this which, as you said, is kind of the potential for for reviving, mm-hmm. but also. 
renewing and also making new again. Yeah. Which is going to have everything to do with the Helen section. But yeah. Faust has to go down there in order to engage with this, right? So it's clearly connected to some kind of erotic drive. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and that's I mean that's necessarily going to have to be how the sort of Helen thing comes back, right? Yeah, um, because it's his instant reaction. <laughs> I guess we say in plot lines, uh, the emperor demands like, or, you know, okay, Faust for your next trick. Now that you've saved my uh, my empire through your uh, use of fiat currency, which I'm sure drives every libertarian nuts when they read this part of the play. Um, <laughs> you now I like okay so now use your powers to show me uh, Paris and Helen uh, of course in the famous uh, Trojan War legend yeah. um, so that's you know Faust goes to the to the mothers to be able to to, to find the shades of Paris and Helen and then in the course of another sort of big mask in the imperial court makes these shades appear and just drives everybody nuts. Uh, because uh, Paris appears, and all the men think he, that he's just, uh, you know, uh, well, he's not worth much, but all the women are going nuts. Uh, and then Helen appears, and all the men are like, I wouldn't kick her out of bed, and all the women are nitpicking how worn her jewels yeah. look. Um, but Faust, Faust's response to Helen is just sheer, unbridled just fixation. <laughs> it was really kind of jarring okay. to read. It's, it's, it's really... It's really weird because this is this is another one of those meta theatrical moments. It's the play within the play. It's the pantomime, and, and he's drawing on on Hamlet and the Tempest, right? And it, it's okay. the The audience is extraordinarily critical. It's as you said, like, who are these guys? Why is this? You know the epitome of um, of beauty or of masculinity or this or that, and it's sort of like Faust has brought that epitome to an uncomprehending audience, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's 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 that weird moment where they're sort of mocking and and ripping it apart, and okay, that makes me wonder if this is. Goethe commenting on how difficult it is to try to revive, you know, great art amongst dunces. Yeah. Um, like that seems to be the satirical thrust there, right? Right. But, but you're right that Faust's reaction is, well, I, I stepped on you a little bit. Tell me more about like what you were thinking. Why were you so taken aback? Well, I guess, I don't know. It, it, felt like it came out of nowhere and part of that is because Faust came out of nowhere. Like the last we yeah. see of, the last we see of Faust in the narrative is him being sucked into the earth after Mephistopheles gives him the magic glowing key to right. go deep into the womb of the earth to, you know, find the shades of Helen and Paris. And we don't actually hear from him again until the performance in front of the Emperor and all of his courtiers. Um so I I guess maybe I should not have been t as taken aback because, of course, what do we know about Faust? We know that he gets horny instantly whenever he sees someone. Um, that was well established in part one. And, but I guess part of it was just like, I, I, I kind of wondered, like, what happened on the trip back up? 
<laughs> this is just how you're acting right now. Like, were you just like making, were you just doing that to text Avery Wolf howls and like, you know, pounding the table on the whole way back up? Or I guess maybe he didn't see the shades until he got back with the tripod, you know, but, well, uh, I- I have a couple of, of ideas about this. All right. So one, yeah, you're right. You miss the action. Like if this was the blockbuster action film, then the descent to the underworld to visit the mothers would be like a huge set piece. And Gertha here is just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It happens off stage. Whatever. Let's, let's get back to Mephistopheles and some dick jokes. Yeah. Um, but the, <laughs> the, he does the the same thing happens when he goes to the classical Volpurgis Knox. Um sort of like Dante, he rides around on Chiron the the um the the centaur and he takes him to this place where he can descend to the underworld to find the actual Helen instead of the illusion. Yeah. And yeah, we don't see that either. <laughs> Eventually he just gets there. Uh but the there's something that happens. Okay. So this is, this is Luke's translation. Um, at a certain point when everybody's sort of mocking, um, Paris and then Helen appears, Mephistopheles doesn't think much of her. Um, the astrologer who's also there as a kind of stage manager is sort of like, yeah, okay, she's pretty cool. And then Faust, have I still eyes? Has beauty's fountainhead itself flooded my inmost mind? So blessed is my reward after that fearful quest. How empty all the world was, closed and dead to me until this priestly revelation founded it fast, a timeless loved creation. May life's breath fail me if habituation shall ever win me back from you again. What magic mirror was it long ago? What fair shape that bewitched me so? What vision now? What vapors phantasm then? To you I pledge my strength, my whole desire, uh, passions, quintessence, all the fire, the idolatry, the madness of my heart. He's, he's okay. Yeah. It does seem to be that he's seeing her for the first time. Yeah. Um, two, he's the one conjuring all this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Three, he's connecting this back to that moment in the witch's kitchen where he saw presumably Gretchen, but whatever it was that was sort of animated from within that he fell in love with. Yeah. Um, at this moment, Faust is so overwhelmed or it's immediately hereafter. Faust is so overwhelmed with the illusion that he produces that he tries to grab Helen from Paris. He is Prospero in love with his own illusion. He is the artist who has come to believe that the created world is the world. Yeah. So he goes to try to grab the illusion. There's an explosion and he's knocked unconscious. But the rest of the play, or at least up till act three, is about trying to get that world to be the world. Yeah. Um. Maybe the the first act is front loaded with all this fraud because we're presented with fraudulent images of what it means to try to aesthetically recreate. Perhaps he's trying to get to a, a truer aesthetic recreation or or a transformation of the world through the aesthetic. I'm not sure. Well, have, listeners, tune in next time to find out. <laughs> well, next time we're not going to find out because next time is the descent to the classical uh, Valpurgis Nacht yeah. and the the 
little floating man. Um, we get a homunculus, which is fantastic. <laughs> I love a homunculus. I love a background uh, uh, abomination. This is uh, yeah, yeah. I, I gotta tell you, God, I am already having so much more fun with this, <laughs> with, with this than with Part One, which wasn't bad to read. It wasn't uninteresting to read, but. It's really shocking to me that this is the part that no one reads. They just read part one because here's what the need is. Honestly, like this is I, this is cockamamie stuff is that makes this like a real thing to chew on. Yeah, this. I mean, all right. I, so I, I I threw a lot out there, and there's a lot of I guess speculative stuff out here right now um and, and i'm hoping that over the course of you know our, our recordings of the rest of the acts that this will start to coalesce and yeah. and, and i'm thinking it will um <clears throat> i know uh, you know act three has a lot to do with this merging of the classical with the present, the the ideal with the material reality, and I'm thinking that's that's where this is all sort of leading up. But <clears throat> after Act Three, it gets weird. And that was really alluded to in the, uh, or it struck, you know, it, it struck me the the Herald introducing the first mask, uh, talking yeah. about the the emperor crossing the Alps to go to Rome uh, to receive his crown and then bringing back the domino, meaning, you know, this, this kind of courtly artifice that we're engaging in now, this is this right. you know, culture back to the, to the lettered, uh, Germans, you know, of the time or whatever. Um, and that seemed to be right there, setting up this dichotomy between, uh, you know, aesthetic achievement and, you know, stolid Germanic potato eating. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, and we're and, not and, debasing and, Germany, and, and opposing that between the classical world and the contemporary world. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's you know we we've got a lot of stuff on the table, and I think as we we move forward, we'll we'll sort of try to to make more and more sense and have this coalesce in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and we'll as we move forward, we'll also I guess by Act Four, we'll have to introduce uh, continental politics back into it. Yeah, but yeah, this is this is a completely different realm. It's it's really refreshing not to be going back over the old misogynistic tropes and to be moving on to something so so much more fantastic and weird and and that's what i'd really say is if any listeners out there are into the fantastic and weird then this 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 has got to be a stop on your reading um please check out faust part two because it's 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 really out there and in, in a really fun energizing way so uh i guess uh when we make our way we'll get to act two and i will that's what we're we're planning on doing is is doing this act by act by act by act in case you you missed that so act two will be coming up i suppose in a few weeks about a month and we'll see what we can see with act two where it gets if possible even stranger (laughs) (laughs) I cannot wait. I love it. All right. Well, thanks for listening and hope you enjoyed.